0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of our show, 28.4 FM, connecting India's youth to the world. On today's episode, I'm joined by my co-host from Delhi, Rishika Arora. And today is a special episode because we're going to be talking about a country that many of you probably can't locate on a map, but maybe you should because of how cool it is and how uh, amazing uh, its initiatives are. are, especially in the field that we're most interested in, which is governance. So this is a country which basically lives online. And I know that most of you are thinking, okay, all of us are always living online because of the pandemic. But this is a country that's been living online for the best part of two decades at this point of time. Uh, You know, from health records to online voting, almost every important part of a citizen's relationship with the state is conducted online with minimal sort of in-person interactions. So this is basically the state that was, decide, this, that, that was designed best for a pandemic like COVID-19. And just in general, obviously. Um, just if you can think about being able to cast a vote online. Think about being able to access your health records online. Think about making all your government appointments and uh, all your government ID applications online and, and the savings the efficiency, the lack of corruption that comes along with it, because you're not interacting with a person. And so we thought we'd bring you a guest from this country itself. And the country we're talking about is Estonia, which is a country of 1 million in Northern Europe. It's a part of the European Union. And it is basically the most advanced digital society in the world. And our guest is actually from Estonia. Uh, Mr. Florian Marcus is joining us today from Tallinn, Estonia and he is a digital transformation advisor and he's going to tell us the story of estonia's e digital society so mr florian Marcus, thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you very much for the opportunity of uh, of talking to you and of course hi to the audience as well so let's get right into the topic which is of
0: utmost importance both here in the united states and in india we have Upcoming elections in uh, you know both these countries and uh, a lot has been spoken about how these elections are going to be conducted sort of on uh, you know in person during a pandemic what's it like looking at this sort of situation from Estonia
1: um, Of course there are there are several layers of uh, incredulity. Towards towards those elections, particularly in the US, if you look at the political climate over there right now, um, in terms of the the way that you would organise an election, uh, that uh, there are discussions about how to do postal voting, how to do uh, voting in person at the polling stations, and so on. Um, it is very hard to relate to for Estonians because. In Estonia, i-voting has been uh, available to the, po- to the population since 2005 uh, for local elections, uh, for national parliamentary elections, and also for the European parliamentary elections. Uh, I'm actually uh, not Estonian; I'm German, uh, but still, I get to vote online through the for the European parliamentary elections and so on. And um, the, I, I guess the the big question that uh, Estonians ask every now and then to to foreign political decision makers. And where we're still waiting for an answer is why don't you make online voting one of your options? You know? Why I mean nobody is forcing you to conduct everything online. We're not conducting everything online. We still have paper voting if you want to vote on paper. You know, we're not forbidding it or something. Um, But certainly to have it have it digitally available, which which I think also makes a lot of sense Uh, in the context of of COVID-19, of course. Uh, Earlier in uh, in April, we had two elections in Europe. We had uh, one referendum in Italy uh, on the constitution uh, that was canceled for obvious reasons. Um, And then uh, in France, we had the mayoral elections across the country uh, that were continue to be held, uh, putting the health of the population at risk. And I think, especially in a scenario like COVID-19, there are only bad options when it's about physical voting. Either you stop the processes of democracy, uh, which has its own problems, or uh, you put the health of your whole nation at risk, because obviously you want people to vote. So... um, Why we can't offer online voting as one of the alternatives uh, is quite incomprehensible to, to many Estonians when they look at the rest of the world.
2: So um, one thing I sort of want to prod is the question of why don't you consider online voting because uh, like an intuitive response to that is uh, trust, I mean, security issues or like establishing trust. So when Estonia was going through this transformation, uh, was there any inhibition to creating like a digital state? Were there What questions were raised with regards to security and how were they tackled?
1: So Estonia had one advantage uh, when it regained independence uh, from the Soviet Union in 1991. Actually, on my birthday, um, the uh, the government had the chance to rebuild its its bureaucratic infrastructure from the ground up because the Soviet Union had just left. Um, so, and Estonia used that chance more so than many other countries, also in the Baltic states, uh, sort of post-Soviet nations. Um, So that allowed us also to to build everything up with security in mind from the very beginning. Uh, Estonia put a lot of focus and hard work uh, into the notion of uh, maintaining and improving or or increasing the the trust of the society. Well, how do you gain trust? I think that's actually a very interesting question. Um, Bearing in mind that countries around the world, governments around the world, have gambled away their people's trust over the last few years. Uh, whether it's in India regarding the, the Aadhaar numbers or whether it's the social security numbers in the U.S., it's the same story. Uh, so um, so in Estonia, you ha- we, we created very early on this secure electronic identity. Um, that uh, means that identity theft is extremely difficult to, uh, to pull off. Uh, that means it's, uh, it's really hard to hack your identity in some ways um, and then, uh, so through that general trust foundation, uh, iVoting became one of, the, one of the earlier online services, actually, uh, before a comprehensive e-health system was actually implemented. Um, and I think the realization there was twofold. Number one, uh, before online voting was possible for the population, and um, the cabinet members were already able to vote online on uh, parts of the agenda of, of the meetings. Uh, so, so they thought, why don't we do that for the rest of the country? And that's a fair question. And uh, the, the second point is that also to this day, uh, people or, or countries around the world that run elections on paper, they like to question um, the veracity, the reliability of the digital voting procedures, but they don't look at their paper voting procedures and think, hmm, could, we, could we do something wrong with this as well? How could we abuse this system right now? Um, and whether it's about uh, electronic uh, ballot machines in the US or whether it is about uh, who does the vote counting in India, like it's a, it's a random third person that you have to trust that they're counting your vote the way you cast it. Uh, it's, a, it's an extremely remote and uncontrollable system, especially at the scale of India. Uh, so, so why exactly we trust uh, the offline version but would never put our trust in an online system um I think I think some people have to, to answer those questions as as well. Uh, can you create unsafe online systems? Absolutely. If you do it, if you build it up the, in the wrong way, if you don't even have a have a secure uh, digital identity to start with, then the whole procedure will be flawed, most likely. And this is what we see around the world right now. But, um, but it is possible to have secure online elections. And we've had that uh, for yeah for 15 years now so um it's going well this is really fascinating to me so let me just break it
0: down how does it work on election day do you have sort of a voter id or or you know that's what we have in india but how like walk us through the process of actually casting your vote
1: what does it look like sure um so in Estonia, everybody has an electronic identity it's it's connected to a personal code it's comparable to the to the art number. Uh, how many how many digits does your number have it's probably a few more than than ours. We've got 11 digits.
2: We've got nine, I think.
1: Ah, okay. Well, ours is longer, I guess. Um, <laughs> fair enough. So, um, so, so all the all the personal uh, data that, that the government stores about you in different databases and different ministries and authorities is connected to that, to that personal code, as we call it. Um, and uh, then there are different types of electronic ID carriers. Uh, this could take the form of an electronic ID card. So it's just the physical identity card. Um, it could also be an app uh, called Smart ID. It could also be a SIM card called Mobile ID that you can get from any network provider in the country. Um, And connected to those different EID carriers, there are two PIN codes. The first one is to log in, sort of authentication. And the second PIN is the digital legally binding signature, um, which you would also use later in the voting process. So what happens? Um, You would have to have some sort of EID carrier, whether it is the the ID card or the mobile ID uh, SIM card, and, and you would also have to download uh, the voting application on a laptop, on a computer or something like that. Um, then you would uh, authenticate yourself with your electronic ID, uh, with, your, with your PIN 1 as well. And then you would uh, see all of the different candidates that are running in your district. Um, you would choose your candidate uh, and then you click vote and then you enter your PIN 2 and then it's done. <laughs> so uh, and and after that, you uh, have a confirmation page where it also shows you a QR code. The QR code you can scan with your phone to see whether the vote, the way you gave it, arrived unchanged at the voting server. So maybe there was someone who tried to intercept your vote for some reason, um, and uh, and that way you can make sure that that did not happen. Uh, the big question for many governments when they when they talk to us is. How can, how can the government be sure that uh, I, as the voter, was not forced or bribed to vote for a different candidate? No, maybe, maybe one of you guys was sitting behind me holding a gun to my head. How can right. we make sure that that doesn't happen? Well, first of all, I think you're nice folks, so I'm, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't. <laughs> um, but we also have another, uh, an, another point um, that's very important. So, um, Abhishek, you, you mentioned at the very start that uh, on election day, we don't really have an election day. we more, we rather have an election week. So every election in Estonia is 10 days long. The first seven days are online. So during those seven days, you can vote as many times as you want. And only the last vote counts. So for example, you can hold a gun to my head. I show you that I vote for your candidate rather than for mine. And then you leave my house because you have to force many, many people to vote for your candidate. And then I just change my vote. Yeah. Um, And so after that seven day online voting period, there's a two day break where everything is sort of uh, calculated. And then we have a final voting day on paper at the polling stations around the country. Uh, And if you cast your vote on paper on voting day, then it also overrides whatever you did online. So the paper vote still technically trumps the digital vote if you decide to vote in both ways uh, for ballot secrecy reasons um, but yeah that's that's how it works and then uh, so so for, for me last year we had the european parliamentary elections and i uh, yeah it took me took me a minute online and then i let my fiance vote on the same laptop with her electronic identity and uh yeah that's it
2: um and Perhaps this is by virtue of how well you explain this, but it sounds like a fairly easy to understand process. Uh, and when we talk about online services, two questions that are often brought up are digital literacy and accessibility. Uh, does everyone have access to the internet? Does everyone have access to an electronic device? So in Estonia, how is this access sort of promised? How is uh, the universal franchise extended to every single member of society?
1: Sure. Uh, so in general, Internet is seen as a social right, meaning that many public places, uh, public spaces and so on, they, they offer free Wi-Fi without any login or something like that. Um, people are still responsible for having their own electronic uh, devices, although I think these days it's fair to say that most people have one. Um, in Estonia, we also have 98% uh, 4G coverage in the entire country. Uh, so it's it's pretty easy to to sync up. Um, to be honest, yes, that was easier for Estonia to achieve than it is for India for geographical reasons, not just size, but also the the nature of the terrain is a bit more challenging in, in India, uh, I suppose. Um, ab- about digital literacy. This is actually one one core component that we need to talk about uh, when we discuss digitalization. Um, I think part of the key lies in education, that you, you teach people this is what a computer looks like, and that's a mouse click, this is Google Chrome, and here's how you save a Microsoft Word document or something. So, so that's just basic skills. But the question is, um, also, even if you know how to get to the government website, uh, are you tempted to use their services? And when many governments around the world think about digital services, I think in their heads it's primarily how can we transfer the paper process to a digital format but sort of a, like a one-to-one conversion so in in terms of a, a tax declaration or you have to fill in the same things but it's now on a pdf you know and and then they're surprised that nobody's using it because uh you're not offering them any benefits you're there, you don't make it easier you don't make it faster you don't make it cheaper why would they use it and then people are surprised um, I think what we've understood quite quickly in Estonia is that, uh, that user friendliness and, um, and the, sort of the service journey plays an incredibly big role in, in the usage rates of digital services. So when we talk about online voting, um, in the last elections, out of all the votes that were cast, 46.7% were cast online voluntarily. So it's almost like a 50-50 split between paper and, uh, and digital. Um, but, but most importantly, one of the biggest voting groups online is aged 55 plus. Wow. So the elderly are actually quite interested in this system because if, if we think about it objectively, um, the elderly have way more incentives to use that system. You know maybe they i mean st- statistically uh the elderly tend to live in more rural areas statistically the elderly have more physical impairments that might keep them from going to the physical polling station so they have they have much more reason to use those systems online number one if they have a device number two if they can connect to it like through the internet and number three, if they know how to use all of those different services, if they are user friendly. And I think if you check these three boxes with any country, um, if you invest into education, if you invest into uh, sort of a connectivity rollout, and then also the user friendly aspect, um, I, th- I think uh, digitalization is only a, a matter of time and also for, for the population to really seriously uh, pick it up.
0: I want you to touch on the on the decentralization of this process, because, you know, elections are inherently politically controlled events, whether they're in India or in the US, in the sense that you have a political entity running the polling booth. Uh, in, In the case of India, we have an independent body, but that comes with its own issues. Um, so, so how do you remove the political control over this process? Because I'm sure, you know, our, our viewers and listeners probably are wondering what happens if the government takes over this process and and just casts
1: votes willy nilly on behalf of the ruling party. (laughs) Uh, well, first of all, you have to make sure that you don't create a system where it is that easy to just willy nilly take over the voting system. Yeah. Uh, The other aspect is yes, we have an independent body. and we have, so, so that one sort of super, uh, is responsible for the supervision of the elections of the, of the black box server where the tabulation of the votes will actually happen. But we also have very much a partisan body that, um, that uh, oversees the elections. But, and this is a very important but, um, there is always a representative of every single party present in parliament. So it's not just the government that, that's uh, oh, 80 percent of the votes came in for us. What a great surprise! <laughs> uh, it's uh, all the opposition parties will be present, and of course also international observers. You know, just like in most other democracies, we let we let those people in because we think we all benefit from that. And uh, quite in, quite importantly, for them, uh, online voting also makes their job easier because you don't have to be in every single polling station around the country. You know, and and the bigger the country, I mean. Um think thinking about how many international election observers go to India, uh that must be thousands of people, just to make sure that in every single state and in every single district, you know, the, the processes are more or less legitimate. Um but if you have around fifty percent of all votes cast on one server, then yeah, you just have to wait in that room and, and oversee the process there. So it it makes it it makes it more reliable in that way uh as well.
2: Um I guess just a small follow up. uh, So would you say that the prevalence of digital services and of course digital voting, does it in any way contribute to what most of the youth in the country pursue? And uh, I guess what I'm trying to sort of get at is in what ways do young students who who might be choosing what to major in or what to like pursue in general, uh, in what ways do they contribute to sort of holding up this digital infrastructure?
1: Um, so, bearing in mind that Estonia has developed this digital reputation over the last 20 years or so, uh, IT studies are incredibly popular in Estonia, relatively speaking. Um, in Estonia, every 10th student at university studies something IT related, which is, which is pretty, uh, pretty strong. Um and, and not just programming, but also cyber and IT law, e-governance change management. So like everything that is connected to those to those processes overall, um, I, I think is quite fascinating and important. Um something something else that has I I of course those those digital services, yes, they they engage the population, but I think the Estonians also take it for granted because they've been like Many some generations have not seen any other systems. My fiance is Estonian. She has never voted on paper, so for for me coming in as a German, I have a completely different appreciation of the system, uh, as as she does. Uh, for her, it's just it's always been that way. Um, so so I don't think I don't think it contributes uh, so much in that way. What I do think is that um, the Estonian government, because it is so so flexible so agile and and willing to innovate all the time uh, the estonian government has become a very attractive um, employer actually which in most countries isn't really the case if you think i don't know if you're at a party and you're talking to, to someone and you ask well what do you do for a living and they say oh i work for the government it's usually like oh you must be fun you know <laughs> uh, sort of uh, you're waiting for your career to die sort of Um, Whereas I think in Estonia there is a very healthy exchange of of experience and knowledge between the private and the public sector, Uh, and I think that helps both sides. Both sides benefit from this. Uh, The government benefits because of all the all the innovation and uh, and the private sector side benefits from from having uh, awareness of all the legislation that might might frame your product that you're thinking of or your startup uh, solutions. So so I think it's it's useful for both sides, really. Coming to the developing world, you
0: know, people from there are watching this interview and and say, okay, this is a great idea. It works in Estonia. Estonia is, you know, $20,000 per person, per capita income, rich country. Um, (laughs) what, (laughs) what, What would some of, what would some of the learnings for these developing countries be for e-governance? I mean, when I think of a country like India, I, I mean, to lock, stock and barrel, take e-voting from Estonia at a national scale is not possible at one time, but why not try it out at the civic levels or at, at, in a particular city, for example? Is, is that how you think about learnings for of the developing world?
1: Um, I, think, I think before we get into the, the nitty-gritty details, we have to do away with the myth that digitalization is expensive. It's not at all. What is expensive is to maintain a paper-based bureaucracy with, with living, breathing humans for um, a billion people. So uh, um, my argument is always, uh, if you can afford to run a paper-based bureaucracy for around like, almost a billion people in your case, uh, you can afford a server room for a billion people. That's not the issue. Uh, so the, the question in, in the case of India, I guess, is, is rather, um, does everyone have a secure electronic identity? Um, so to, to get those basics right. Um, actually, what we've seen with with many countries around the world, uh, for background, I'm a political scientist. So uh, what we see is that, um, that rich countries are usually really bad at digitalization because they don't feel the same pain that poor countries feel. You know, post-Soviet Estonia was between a rock and a hard place. They, yeah. they didn't have a lot of manpower, they didn't have a lot of money either. So they knew the only way uh, is like to invest right now and then hope for the best. Um, and, I, and I think the, the same is true for, for, the, for other countries. We're currently seeing um, some of the fundamentals that are working in Estonia, we have partnerships with, uh, with Namibia and Benin in Africa. Um, which again are are not the richest country in the world. <laughs> uh, we we have a cooperation with Ukraine, which by uh, European standards is also still very much a developing economy. Um, so so don't don't take it as an excuse uh, that that poverty somehow might be uh, a, a hurdle for digitalization to clear. The bigger challenge us- usually is, and we see that around the world, regardless of of wealth status um is how federal is your government structure and now we're, when we're talking about india of course uh, there's a lot of fragmentation going on yeah. just like in the us just like germany as well uh, and those countries tend to struggle a bit more with digitalization because uh, in most instances the government the national government that is is very reluctant to put down very clear frameworks for what are the security standards what is the data exchange protocol that we're going to use uh, which authority has the right to ask what other authority for what kind of data. Uh, That's tricky stuff. Um, So I think bearing that in mind, um, having pilot projects in one district uh, in India or maybe one federal state in India, uh, that's already a pretty pretty big challenge given the size of your federal states. Uh, but uh, I think it's a good good place to start and then from that pilot project to see what works and what doesn't for your country because you can't copy-paste you know one-to-one solutions from Estonia um, and then see, see where it goes.
2: I mean, looking at Estonia, it, it feels like we're looking into the future, honestly. I mean, it, it feels very fitting for 2020. Like, of course, this is how things should be, but at the same time, it's also so unfathomable. How is it that that's how things should be? Um, so just to, uh, and sort of like to segue into our conclusion, uh, in what ways has this been lucrative for the pandemic? In what ways has this digitalization helped Estonia navigate its way through COVID-19?
1: Um, so be- be- before I answer that question, you, you mentioned the point that it it seems sort of surprising for 2020. I think uh, the and this is an extremely sad point actually, um, in the private sector, I can order a pizza to your house in 20 minutes yeah and pay online you know i can i can book a hotel in bangkok right now and it's going to be reserved in two years from now yeah and that's normal but somehow people around the world have gotten used to the fact that the public sector sucks (laughs) you know why why have we come to accept that the gap between the public and the private sector is 20 years yeah i i think so so in a way estonia yes it deserves some praise but estonia the the government sector is still lagging behind the private sector by three years or so we are starting to think about how we can use voice assistance google has figured that stuff out years ago yeah so um i i think it's always the private sector's job to innovate uh, with all of this and that's good uh but the the public sector should not take that as an excuse to lag behind too much uh but always stay a couple of years behind but keep catching up to answer your covid question um of course what's what's been happening around the world is is tragic uh it's uh i mean it's it's hundreds of thousands of deaths uh around the world um which um which is of course good for no one uh but but on on the digital agenda itself uh, it's been a bit of a blessing uh, because usually the the question that people ask us is uh, what if these digital services fail what if there's you know there's a power uh, cut out or there's server overload or something and finally we get to ask well what if the physical uh, services break down what okay. if you're not allowed to go to the office anymore yeah. so finally we get to ask that question in the other direction um, and uh, so, so to go in, in the direction of your question, um, the the pandemic for us has been pretty straightforward. Uh, we've already had the entire e-health data set of every single citizen and resident digitalized. So when it came to implementing a COVID test, you just had to add one more red button to the e-health system and, and the website. Um, the, the whole data exchange worked rather, I mean, at the start, we had to develop some new infrastructure, of course, for that data exchange in particular, but but the infrastructure was already existing beforehand. Um, talking about digital signatures, uh, before the pandemic, um, the digital signature alone has saved Estonia around 2% of the GDP every single year, because wow. we use it a lot, yeah. Um, so we don't do paper signatures. For me, that was also crazy when I came here. And um, so, so in that way, nothing has changed. Uh, what, what has changed, of course, is that we don't do physical meetings so often anymore. Um, but but the, the supporting mechanisms for, for all of that, the data exchange, the, the digital identity, the, the signatures, and so on, all of that people have already been used to for, for many, many years. And, uh, and so I think that's been, that's been extremely helpful. Also, another example would be e-education where the government declared um towards the end of one week in march i believe it was i think it was like a thursday or friday uh, we're going to close all schools n- next monday <laughs> and then the schools were like okay that's fair that's understandable and then we already had every school has an e-education system uh, all the education materials are online uh so so it was uh, just a switch to the digital world and um and we can we can hold on to this mode of of, uh, of interaction for another year, if we have to, you know, because it's already there. So, uh, no, one's enjoying the pandemic and also in Estonia we've, we've had, uh, we've had cases of infection, of course. Um, but, but overall, the disruption to our system has been a lot more manageable than what we see in most other countries.
0: I think this is like the best sort of to use, uh, to, because of lack of a different word best sales pitch for a digital society is is something like this because, you know, you keep thinking about digital society as an enhancement to your way of living. But this, in this instance, this is how you live and, and it's entirely possible that you have another pandemic in 10 years. I mean, that's the surest bet that you can make. But if you had to sort of summarize sort of your take on what the biggest benefits for citizen state relations is from a digital society. In a couple of sentences, what would would those
1: be? In the shortest form, e-government is not a gimmick, a nice to have. It is a serious improvement to your quality of life. If you can declare your taxes in three minutes and you can just have a coffee afterwards because you just saved several hours of work, you've saved the money on the tax advisor and so on. If you imagine that uh, in my five years here in Estonia, I have never been to a government office. You just—you don't have to think about that part of your life anymore. Okay. Full stop. So I think this is an extremely massive benefit. The bigger your country, the bigger the benefit. And um, the, the only way is digitalization because if your country does not digitalize, your neighboring country will, and it will attract the young, the talented, and so on. This is what we see in Estonia. This is what we see with countries around the world.
0: I think if I had to add to that, to people listening to us, just expect better from your government be aspirational for a better society and for a better government. It's possible. It's not even that expensive. It just needs a little bit of vision and a, a lot of planning to get the execution correct. But all of us can expect better from our government. There's so much about e-Estonia that we couldn't even get to, including their eResidency program, their health records, their eEducation program. And we'll link you to the website so that you can go and read up on just what it is that they've done there. And... Uh, and I and I and I hope that we can have Florian back in the future to talk about some of those other initiatives because each one of them individually is so powerful, and in in aggregate has just created a whole different form of society which is completely unrelatable uh, to either Rishika in India and to me in the U.S. and and make no mistake about this, Estonia is ahead of the U.S. Estonia is ahead
1: of many parts of the, of Europe too in in, in this domain. Absolutely. Um, If if I may add one more thing to this, don't just expect more of your politicians become a politician, (laughs) a 60 year old man or woman does not care about digitalization because they didn't grow up with it. They weren't raised with it and they don't use it today. So you have to bring into politics what you care about and no one else can do that for you. So that's going to be our 10
0: second ad for every single candidate young candidate contesting elections in <laughs> india going forward but on that note florian thank you so much for joining us while i go and google how to become an estonian uh, i think we'll wrap up there and and thanks so much
1: again thank you very much for for the good conversation and thanks for listening thank you, thank you.